Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with George Dallas and Mike Lubrano. George is the head of content at the European Corporate Governance Institute, ECGI, and former policy director at the International Corporate Governance Network, ICGN. Mike is a managing director of Valoris Stewardship Catalyst and former managing director of Corporate Governance and Sustainability at Cardica Management. In this podcast, we talk about their book, Governance, Stewardship, and Sustainability, and how they define and think about stewardship, sustainability, and ESG. We discuss methodologies, evidence, and other matters, including the Volkswagen Dieselgate case study. We also talk about international corporate governance distinctions in places like the UK, Europe, and Latin America, including matters such as cross-listings, ADRs, activism, and engagement between controlling shareholders and minority investors. We also address the anti-ESG trend, politicization of governance in the United States, and large asset managers passing through voting power to beneficial owners. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Mike and George, it is so good to see you in the Boardroom Governance podcast. We have seen each other in other contexts, but it's great to talk about governance and talk about your book and other issues that are uh, relevant to boards. Thank you very much for taking the time. Great pleasure, Evan, to always to join up with Mike, and uh, I've, I've been enjoying your podcast as well. Me too, Evan, and uh, I wanted you to know that my Valoris partner, Martin Steindl, in Austria has been a huge fan of this podcast for a long time. He's He uh, uh, he, um, he got me hooked on it, uh, and... Um, he he's always he's been he's told the entire team many times that it's his favorite professional podcast. But if you want to if you want to be his favorite overall, you're going to have to beat out Conan O'Brien because that's his his favorite uh, non professional podcast. But well, I love it. This is a great way to start a podcast on this happy <laughs> good note. So uh, you you're doing very well, Mike. I, I I like that. Send more praises. You're not going to get any praise from me. All right. So let's start and and maybe. We'll start with you, uh, George. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, maybe where you're born, where you grew up, and then we can go into your professional career, and then we'll follow up with you, Mike. Um, yeah. Uh, gosh, I was born in Indiana, believe it or not. Uh, my father was a professor of economics there, and then but I moved, he moved to Atlanta uh, to teach at Georgia Tech when I was about two years old. So I lived in, I basically grew up in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, went off, uh, as I, having the, the, the joys of California beckoned me, which you're, uh, experiencing and I sadly am not, but I went to undergraduate at Stanford, uh, and studied uh, German and philosophy. Um, and, um, but then went on, I was, I thought I was going to do law school, but I decided against it, um. And I wound up going on to Berkeley and got an MBA there. Um, in um, that was in 1981, and oh, and then I've just had a, a series, you know, of, of different roles in the financial world. I started out as a with credit training as a banker at Wells Fargo doing corporate banking, 
spent a long time at Standard & Poor's um, managing the European uh, region and their credit rating operations and um, heading up global emerging markets and running the London office and uh, starting up our governance uh, assessments there. Which- so very early on, you've how long have you been living in London or did you move out from the US? I moved, I was in New York for a long time, uh, but I moved in 1988 uh, to London. And mm-hmm. it was not in any big plan, but I just haven't come back. And it's, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> Um, okay. But just to, just to make it quick, and then I was at S&P for a number of years, got into governance, and then went into uh, the asset management world uh, at F&C Investments, which is uh, now part of the um, Columbia Threadneedle Group, an asset management firm in the UK. Um, but then more recently, I've been at ICGN, where I was policy director and worked together with Mike uh, doing training and also this book that we'll be talking about. And then more recently, actually, beginning this year, I've, I've taken up a role at the European Corporate Governance Institute, ECGI, which is an academic network, I'm sure you know well, um, helping mm-hmm. them uh, to advise them in their content. Yeah, before we, we, we move into Mike, and I'm sure we'll talk about ICGN in a bit as well, but why don't you tell us more about the European Corporate Governance Institute? Maybe a lot of my listeners may not be academics and they are practitioners, so maybe you can give a little bit of an overview of what is the European Corporate Governance Institute. Uh, firstly, it should be called the International Corporate Governance Institute because I think it started out as a, as a body of your, your, well, it actually started out as a network of academics, really transatlantic, and now is really spread globally. And I would say it, you know, it's it's really um, amongst you know, ECGI academic members is probably, you know, a big uh, a big portion of the scholarship, the leading scholarship relating to in law and finance, relating to, to governance issues and broader investment sustainability issues uh, would be, you know, is, is uh, ECGI is an oasis for that. They, they, you know, have numbers of working papers. They have uh, they're working on a responsible capitalism series that that I'm uh, getting involved with, which is really excited along the lines of responsible investment, company purpose, um, and you know family capitalism, and, and it's just basically trying to promote knowledge and scholarship. But but to your point, Evan, it's also focused very much on trying to be almost a filter for for academic research to professionals who want to be able to. To come to a, an understanding of, the, you know, at least some set state of scholarship in the field, and I think it's fairly important for professionals to have, even if you're a practitioner, to have some understanding of what what research is going on, because I think it can be useful. And I think my my role at ECGI, as I'm understanding it, is to help broker that type of knowledge from the academic community to practitioners, whether they're you know corporates, investors, regulators, or whatever, to make. You know, practical use of these tools and ideas. All right. Well, that's great. And I know Mark Beck for, for a long time. So if he's listening to this, uh, I yeah. say hi to him. <laughs> Mike, why don't we uh, uh, move with your background, where you're born, where you grew up, and, and we'll talk about that too. Well, I, I'm uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, so I don't have as uh, pleasant an accent as George developed from, from Georgia. Uh, my parents didn't go to college, but they valued education, so they ensured I we, that we lived uh, in neighborhoods that had good schools, and that served me well to get into good colleges. And, and after that, unlike George, I made the mistake probably of going to law school. I, I, I did also go to public policy school on the side, but um, 
uh, but I am a lawyer by profession. And my career in corporate governance really began with my work as a lawyer on Wall Street, taking Latin American companies uh, public in the United States, in particularly companies uh, from Mexico and Chile and Latin America. And in fact, for a little while, I, I worked for Mexican law firms. Uh, I worked principally for Cleary Gottlieb, which is one of the big New York Wall Street law firms. And But for a while, I was traded for Mexican lawyers uh, for, for, for a period. It's like kind of uh, U.S. baseball players who go to work, go to play in Japan for a few years and then come back. And I did that, but actually was a way of getting closer to the companies. And so in... Let, let me ask you a question there. Um, I'm curious on your view because obviously it's an informed view. Many of these companies in Latin America cross-listed in those years. That's what I was doing, yeah, ADRs. Exactly. And so my question is, that has sort of not been the case so much, although there's a subset of tech companies that are going direct listings and not cross-listings. How do you see the evolution of this trend of ADRs and cross-listings, and why is that not happening anymore? What's the maybe technological advances that may not require some of these companies to do that? And I know the Brazilian corporate governance codes and, and exchanges have tried to curb that and wanted to foment their own companies to go public through this Novo Mercado, for example, but but maybe you have a view on, on this cross-listing ADRs. Well, it's been a very different experience from emerging markets ADRs from the traditional European and Japanese ones. I, there was a phenomena called flowback, mm-hmm. that ADR programs in the U.S. typically would be seeded with the initial ADR offering. But then over time, particularly when there are downturns in the economy, the deeper market, which was typically the home market, Europe or Japan for the early day ADRs, the, the shares would end up flowing back there. And eventually the ADR facility would become reasonably illiquid because all the shares had been uh, traded back to the home market. That didn't happen with Latin American uh, issuers and probably other emerging markets. I know the Latin's the best, um, uh, largely because the own markets were not very liquid. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the non-controlling investors were foreign investors, foreign institutional investors. So the more active market was actually the ADRs in the U.S. So the reasons for having the home market became less I- important. And 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 I'm a I worked for years at International Finance Corporation on the development of national capital markets, and I would venture the the opinion that the optimal number of exchanges in most countries is less than one. Mm-hmm. That that uh, not every country needs to have a national exchange, not to say that the larger Latin American markets don't need them. They, they probably do. But as you probably know, there has been an effort to merge up mm-hmm. the markets in the Pacific uh, part of uh, South America. Um, there was a, 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 an effort to to uh, well, first off, they merged all of the separate Colombian exchanges and they were going to at one point Merge the Colombian exchange with the Peruvian exchange, and maybe all together they have a they have a, a collaboration also with the Chilean exchange. So, um, uh, in order to get the kind of liquidity that would, I guess, invite flowback, which has never really occurred. So, I think that's one of the reasons why dual listings haven't been so valuable, because the home market doesn't really support uh, support the trading volume. The the, the global one overtakes okay. that. No, it's good, yeah. and and maybe that, that that is that may be a little bit of inside baseball, but I think it's it's interesting with with your experience. So then, after Cleary, you you go to the World Bank. Well, I would say that some of my work, probably since working with the Latin American issuers, uh, we did represent the underwriters, but uh, you know, taking them public has been penance for 
all of the arrangements that I collaborated with uh, that were not necessarily in the best interest of minority shareholders. We we did a lot of dual class share structures. Initially, ADRs were used as a way to uh, uh, to transfer voting rights from the uh, minority shareholders, the ADR holders, actually to the controllers. They got to vote the shares if if the uh, if the minority shareholders that held through ADRs didn't vote. Um, so it's, it's been it's been a peasant's uh, penance experience. Um, uh, so I did join, as, I, as you mentioned, the World Bank uh, to work on the Mexican financial crisis more than anything else, the tequila crisis. I had been working as a lawyer in Mexico when I came to uh, to, to Washington to work for the World Bank. It it wasn't uh, the tequila crisis yet, but I was working on a financial markets development project, and the tequila crisis happened right in the middle of that. So I got to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of a, a major financial crisis. Um, after that, um, I, I went to the International Finance Corporation in 1997 in the capital markets development uh, unit of, of IFC. Uh, and my first project was a corporate governance crisis in Chile, a country you know very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, uh, um, the, the Chile was at that time without a tender offer law and had a number of unfair treatments of minority shareholders because of that. So I uh, was uh, lent out to the Ministry of Finance drafting a tender offer legislation. This is the cheese bus case. Uh, right after the cheese bus case, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. in reaction to the cheese bus case. So um, uh, I, I worked on that for a couple of years, you know, through other things. And eventually that developed into the corporate governance unit of IFC, which I had the uh, honor of creating and, uh, and leading until uh, I left in 2007. Okay. And then you, you joined an investment firm. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, together with um, uh, three other partners and founders of the firm, two of which also were actually my boss and my boss's boss at mm-hmm. IFC, we set up Cardica Management, which uh, had a very explicit value proposition of working with investing in uh, SMID cap companies, listed companies in emerging markets, and working with them to improve their corporate governance and improve their value and achieve uh, achieve uh, uh, alpha over over a, a reasonable time period. And um, uh, I, I worked there for ten years. And then um, uh, during that time, I was very active. Uh, IFC was a very active supporter of the OECD efforts in emerging markets. I got had the uh, had the honor of uh, working with Matt Isaacson from OECD to set up the Latin America Corporate Governance Roundtable, which still exists today. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and and then after that, um, after leaving uh, three years ago from Cardica, uh, I've uh, collaborated with uh, my partners Martin, who I already mentioned, David and Marianelis, to set up Valoris. And and Valoris's purpose is basically to operationalize the book that George and I wrote, Governance Stewardship wow. and Sustainability. That's what we do. Okay. I mean, all right. Th- th- that's great. And so we'll we'll go into that now. And let's talk about the book. So you wrote this book, Governance, Stewardship, and Sustainability, Theory, Practice, and Evidence. It's in its second edition. Uh, I see the first edition was 2021. And now there's a ne- next edition, which I suppose is coming out this year, 2023. It's out. It came out in November. It was We launched it in November. Okay. And and so, we had a boozy book launch in London in November. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry you couldn't be there. We'll do one in the States. Yeah, tell us more about uh, this book. Why did you write it? What what was the focus? What prompted you to to do this? And and maybe, you know, not some people, some listeners may have read it, but others don't know much about it. 
Well, it was it was your idea, George, but I can do the intro and you can tell me what uh, what I didn't know about why it was your brainchild. The first thing I think we would both agree, and it wasn't a COVID project. It's not what you think. It was not a COVID project. Uh, George <laughs> wanted to do this book and, and approached me about it before COVID broke out. So it wasn't initially a COVID project. Uh, as, as George mentioned, um, uh, uh, we've been collaborating on the education program at International Corporate Governance Network for for many years. There's been an ESG integration course uh, that goes back about 10 years. And we were in the process of re- revising and, and remaking uh, that course. But um, uh, it was uh, uh, evident to us while we, while we were working on that course that there wasn't a concise text that would bring together the three strands of governance, stewardship, and sustainability in a single place for practitioners. Uh, th- there was a lot of academic work which we value very much. Um, uh, but when we taught the course, there really wasn't one thing that pulled it together. And the course itself needed to be tweaked to pull it together better because there have been very significant developments. In fact, the reason we're in our second edition is because the developments are so fast that we have to re- re- rewrite the book every every year. Um, so that that was the, the, the genesis of the book. We developed the book and drafted the book at the same time that we were revising the course, which in a way was a COVID project because we had to bring the course from its um, its in-person um, structure into a, a, a blended learning or online uh, delivery of the course. So, so uh, George, I, I don't know if you want to, if I've characterized correctly your your thinking in, in, in proposing the course in the first place, and have I missed anything? Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, I think expressing some of these ideas in a book form that was, I think, always been on, on my mind. And I think this was a great opportunity to do this and working with Mike again, it just fit really hand in glove. And it is a, it, and this is, this is this book, I think will, as Mike says, is, is going to be sort of forming a foundation. It will probably hopefully continue to evolve and further additions as this field continues to grow, but it, it's also being used as one of the, the cornerstones of ICGN's uh, governance, you know, the course by that goes by the same name of governance, stewardship, and sustainability. And that's so. I think what you're saying in terms of what Mike's doing, in terms of his consulting practice, what you know, ICGN was doing with its own, you know, training, is is trying to really, you know, take these concepts uh, and op, you know, and help their practical implementation. And and I think you know, as you pointed out, Evan, we, one of the subtitles was, was evidence. Um, and I think that that's really important to, because I think a lot of things happen in our world, which in some ways may be rationalized myth. They sound like they're maybe good ideas. Intuitively, they may make sense, but, you know, do we really have evidence as to whether we're, you know, we're sailing in the wrong direction or we're believing in something that we shouldn't be believing or whether we do have some, some grounding, uh, in terms of the types of, decisions that are taken. And I think that this, I think, I think the, 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 the evidence and, you know, how this is expressed in practical activities will continue to grow and develop together. And I think hopefully, you know, this book, if you look at it, we, we very careful, we, we presented one whole chapter on what are the, what is the evidence-based show? And it's, you know, it's to some extent, it's still inconclusive. There are, you know, glimmers here and there. It's the mosaic that's filling in, but it's really trying to link in part, just again, what are we trying to achieve? You know, what evidence is there? And then also, you know, how do people move their hands and feet to get this done? Yeah, and that's great. I suppose my first question 
is how do you define stewardship? This tends to be a, a word more broadly used maybe in the UK, maybe in Europe. I know there are about 51 stewardship codes around the world, or maybe there's more at this stage. Uh, there's none in the US, uh, and maybe we use other nomenclature. But um, why don't you tell us how do you define stewardship? How do you define sustainability? And I suppose when you started 10 years ago in this course in ICGN, ESG wasn't a thing, or maybe it was, I don't know. It obviously has hit now, everybody talks about ESG, but uh, there has been this concept of responsible investment, sustainable investment, there are different words, impact investing that are used. Maybe we can talk about that as well, but let's start with stewardship and sustainability. I'll let Mike talk about sustainability, but I'll, I'll kick off with stewardship. I mean, in the book, we, you know, we sort of use a, a, a fairly, we start with a fairly generic definition. As you say, Evan, stewardship does not translate well into all languages, um, but I, and, and it is probably, it's, there's some Britishness in, in the origin of the term, but it, it you know, it's, it's basically doing, handling something else on somebody else's behalf in a responsible manner. And if you apply that into the investment world, this, this means this this brings in uh, asset managers, asset owners, and, and their ultimate beneficiaries into the equation. And and this is also under a, 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 key, a cousin or a parent or whatever to stewardship would really be fiduciary duty, which is the duty, particularly in types of contractual arrangements that uh, institutional investors have. To, to look after, in the first instance, uh, their beneficiaries. Again, it could be asset owners. It could be the, the beneficiaries of the asset owners. That's the primary issue. And I think part of what the book says is that you know, for institutional investors, uh, stewardship grounded by fiduciary duty is, is has to be the first port of call. But that is not inconsistent with, uh, with I think, trying to, to manage and, and invest uh, on a sustainable basis. Um, and maybe, Mike, that would be a good way to to, to pitch this to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting after all of these years, and, and um, not to correct you, Evan, but our course was called the ESG Integration Course more than ten years ago. So I guess that term is kind of old, but um, but we're still we're still talking about how to define ESG and sustainability. And I I think actually, Mike, no. let me ask you because then you, you may yeah. know this because you uh, may have been around. Because I'm old, is what you're I've, saying. I've yeah. noticed. <laughs> no, no, but but I've um, th there's a great paper Elizabeth Pullman wrote about ESG, and she tracked the term ESG historically. I think it was the UN that uh, termed it in the first time. And uh, how have you seen? And obviously, you've been involved with IFC, you've been involved uh, with the OECD. There's a lot of push from the multilateral or international community. But uh, do you also track ESG from those? Uh, multilateral or UN efforts? What do you mean by track them? Do you trace it all the way back there? I mean, well, I mean, I think that that might be one of the problems. The the uh, development finance organizations are by their nature double bottom line operations. They're not. They don't make investments just for return or just with the thought of the company in which they're investing. The success of just that mm -hmm. company. Right, their 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 goals are very explicit to develop the capital markets, to develop the economies, to alleviate poverty. They are. I worked for IFC in the World Bank Group. We carry UN passports, right? So that's that's our, our goal. Um, is 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 uh, is third third party benefits. Uh, let's say not just the investor and the company, and um, that's a different agenda than most 
investors than most private sector investors, apart from impact investors, of the members of ICGN are not development finance organizations. Um, they're not, and, and so they, the term gets used in different ways. Interestingly, the term stewardship that, um, uh, that uh, George just uh, uh, so eloquently dis- described and defined, that's not a term that DFIs, that development finance organizations use, because for them, stewardship is all they do. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to make maximize returns necessarily. I mean, they, they, they have an interest in the demonstration effect of making money and also the more money they make, the more operations and good in the world they, uh, they, they, they potentially can do. Um, so, um, you know, uh, we still have, uh, and we will have for a while, some differences of u- use of these terms from one uh, investor to another. And then also what I was trying to, uh, what I was going to try to get to using the term sustainability, that the term ESG is an investor's term. And it is sometimes by companies, certainly the companies that that I work with, uh, it's it's somewhat suspect in that it's an agenda that isn't in the best interest of the company necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's the investors' objectives that may be, particularly if they're an uh, impact investor or the like, that are not uh, entirely aligned with the company. So we try to use the term sustainability more frequently because that's a term that we can use for the companies to understand that we're talking about the, comp- the sustainability of your business. The long-term success of your business, yeah. not just for the investors or because the investors have a political agenda or whatever it is, but because uh, of um, uh, of the success of your company. In, in the book, we, we we talk about it, and we talk a lot about ESG. You know, I think we also need to be, you know, careful about the term and what it means because it can mean a lot mm-hmm. to many people. And mm-hmm. you think about its origins. You take an E and an S and you clump it together. And, and it's supposed to mean something, you know, unto itself. And I think that that can be sort of problem, you know, problematic. Uh, and um, so it, that's, you know, I think in the book we call ESG sort of an unstable molecule, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, I think you, what you do really need to, 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 you know, take take things apart and rather than think of this as a whole. And I think it was, it was clustered together for convenience purposes. I think I know somebody who, who claims credit to having coined that term, but probably many people do. But, um, you know, it's, 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 I, I, I think I know when I was at ICGN, we started to evolve, as Mike said, to using the term sustainability, if nothing else, because now ESG has become this, which I'm, I think is one of the topics you want to get to later, mm-hmm. Evan. It's become, you know, unduly politicized and almost willfully misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think we, if, you know, we, that's, that's something we don't necessarily need to want to encourage, at least. So, George, maybe it would help if you tell us a little bit more about the ICGN Global Stewardship Principles. And I know there were different iterations. And the first one was actually a statement on institutional shareholder responsibilities. And then it evolve into the stewardship principles and maybe also the corporate governance principles, right? That started in 2001 and evolve. And and that could frame a little bit some of the thoughts, at least coming from ICGN versus others, because there's been a lot of these different uh, viewpoints, but maybe you can talk more about ICGN. Sure, sure. Um, And well, I think ICGN, firstly, to be understood for those who don't know it, it's a it's a network. It's an investor led network, but it's it's membership base is basically inclusive, uh, you know, of of participants in the broader ecosystem of corporate governance and, and stewardship. This could be, you know, asset owners, asset managers, 
um, uh, at portfolio managers on the investment side. It could be issuers, it can be company secretaries, it can be board members, uh, academics, regulators, you know, what uh, accountings and standard setters. It's, it's the community that we try to bring together, but it's the ultimate goal is to express, uh, you know, views on what good corporate governance is in companies that investors invest in as one pillar of the platform. And the second key pillar is, you know, looking at the responsibility that investors have themselves, which is, uh, you know, manifested itself in stewardship uh, and fiduciary duty. Um, ICGN's investor members represent around 70 trillion U.S. in, in assets under management. So it's a big piece of the market. And, um, and so what we try to, you know, and I'm no longer a policy director, but I'm still a member of, of ICGN. What we try to do is, you know, basically provide a, a global platform and an architecture that, you know, its advantages, its, its disadvantage at the same time. It, it provides a global framework that's not biased, at least not meant to be biased by any one particular jurisdiction as, as a basis for comparison and, you know, you know, at least one statement of, of best practice. And this could be both with regard to corporate governance and stewardship. Um, and then it's also used by regulators, can be used by uh, investments uh, in companies in terms of their governance practices, investors and their stewardship practices. And it's basically, you know, one uh, one platform for, for global uh, that that has some global recognition. And the, the, the EU, for example, has recognized two uh, uh, independent global authorities on uh, standards on corporate governance. One is the, uh, no surprises, the OECD G20 governance principles, but the ICGN's uh, corporate governance principles have that same recognition. So it's basically, uh, it's, and it's legitimacy and comes in part because it's uh, investor led. It, uh, it's, uh, it's approved. It's ratified. It's, you know, this consultant's consulting process and it's approved by members. So it, it does represent, you know, an authoritative, authoritative investor perspective um, on these issues that, you know, it provides a platform for getting more granular about the types of, you know, issues and topics that, that you know, we've written about uh, in the book. Okay. No, that's, that's a, a great overview of what ICGN is. Let me ask you two items of your book uh, before we move into other topics. But one of them is that there is a chapter in your book that talks about ESG methodology. And uh, you talk about designing an effective ESG methodology. Why don't you tell us more about that and what do you propose? And I, I noticed you used uh, a framework there, or at least a, a definition by the Sonin Impact Investment Spectrum that goes from classic investment to responsible, sustainable, thematic, impact first, and then philanthropy. So there's like the spectrum between how do you see the different types of investments. And I thought that was interesting. And, and maybe what do you bring in terms of thinking about this in, uh, and, and, and how should companies or investors approach this ESG uh, methodology? Yeah, it's uh, great that you highlighted the uh, Sonnen uh, spectrum of different types of investors. What we propose, and what we think is unavoidable in any case, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out, is that every investor, every institutional investor's approach to incorporating consideration of environmental and social and governance factors in the investment process has to derive from that investor's objectives, and those are laid out or, or, or typologized a bit in the, in the, um, the spectrum 
graphic that you just mentioned, as well mm-hmm. as their investment beliefs, the nature of the assets they're investing in, their own existing investment processes, and the, the talents and knowledge of their staff. And so as a result, there can't be a one-size-fits-all. There can't even be a 10-size-fits-most set of tools or practices that can be integrated into the investment process to make sure that you have, as an investor, considered the environmental and social and governance risks and opportunities that will will um, will help you be a better investor and, and, and earn or achieve whatever objectives you have if you are a fiduciary for pension funds, well, your objective is to ensure that the fund makes money uh, and and maximizes the benefits for the pensioners. But if you're obviously an impact investor, you have a double bottom line, at least, where you're also trying to achieve certain identifiable and measurable impacts, uh, then you have a, a different process. But even two funds that are the same size and in the same market might have different skill sets or different views um, different investment beliefs or different um, existing processes, and it'll have to develop different tools. What we try to do in the book is give some examples. We we invented a mm-hmm. uh, a fictitious uh, but realistic fund manager, which is named after George's uh, George's um, bluegrass band, and uh, uh, we we provide that as a uh, as an example. But in no way do we propose that everybody follow uh, that model. Okay. George, anything to add into into that? Um, no, I, th- I think I think it I think it's important <clears throat> it's important to recognize that there is a spectrum that I think. And again, this is where I use the tool of fiduciary duty because um, there is a spectrum of beneficiaries that are served, and they may you know on one side of the spectrum may be an impact investor. They will have different needs that need to be satisfied by other investor other investor beneficiaries who may you know endorse the use of ESG risks uh, in the investment process, but more in the sense of, uh, you know, just generating sustainable returns. Both of the are legitimate styles of investment and both are in its legitimate for uh, stewardship to cater to both audiences, but it's important to know which audience that you're catering to. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that uh, caught my eye in, in, in the book is that you used one case study, which is the Dieselgate, the Volkswagen Dieselgate case study. And and my question there is, why did you pick that case? And it is interesting to use a German case study because of its very specific governance structure where you have a supervisory board and you have a management board and that creates maybe a different types of elements and and I'm, I'd be happy to talk about that too. Yeah, well, VW it's it's an iconic brand, it's well known worldwide, the Dieselgate scandal and you know and it's you know it's it's hard to to you know mechanically trace the Dieselgate scandal to to ESG or governance issues, but I think the whole case is is premised upon Looking at at the dynamics and potentially trying to draw some conclusions about the culture that 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 you know in which this was produced, and as you say, it's, it's by far uh, you know, by by no means a typical company. It's 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 unique. It's almost like a mm-hmm. you know, a perfect storm of ingredients, including 
uh, a family ownership of you know over 50% of the votes but about 30% of the capital state ownership uh and you know and what are their interests is it to generate returns on the stock or do they have other motivations there are uh, the the 50-50 uh, board which is half is not basically uh, uh, voted for by the family interest because they control the they control the, the you know that half of the board and the rest is is is, is the trade council that have their own motivations, uh, which you know may not, which might even be more for not only for the labor force but for the German labor force. And this is a company that's trying to compete as to, to be number one in a global economy where they're not the cost leader. There's all sorts of interesting and fascinating strategic issues that that are, that are at play here. And and what we're trying to do is just sort of tell the story, present this structure. I think VW, you know, was and is doing many good things, but uh, it's it's they they've lost so much value in this process that it, it does make one stop and sit back and say, you know, what could we have seen this coming? Uh were there any what 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 red yellow flags might have been out there to make us look? And then, you know, from the stewardship piece, what what can one do about VW today? If one, if if you have them in a portfolio, should you have them in a portfolio? But if you do, what you should what what should you do? I think it's and it, it does combine. There's environmental issues because they cheated on the admissions. There's social issues reflecting, you know, customers and, and the workforce at VW. And then obviously, uh, governance issues was probably the secret to the story. And, and that's that's huge. And, and it's a story in which investors, outside investors, were, were damaged. So I think it's 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 a fun. And it's also a fun case. I mean, it's also very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and we get people to in our course uh, to act out different. Uh, different roles, uh, uh, you know, uh, around the board table, and it, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. That's great, Mike. Any any thoughts? And and I have a follow up question on on Volkswagen on what's happening now. But well, George is the expert on Volkswagen. But what I would say is, we tried to make the book, uh, and we tried to make the course um, accessible and relevant, regardless of what market you're from. And one of the beauties of the Volkswagen case, it's a German case, sure, but it raises so many issues that are important in one or more markets. I mean, if we could have a U.S. case, we might focus just on on executive compensation or or the issues that are really particularly American. This case, okay, it has some things that are very German, but one of the reasons that I think the participants in the course engage so well when when they do this case is that they're from all over the place. They see issues in this case that are also relevant in their markets. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question, and I, and I think I've talked about this in, in other episodes, but it's a great example because one of the latest CEOs of Volkswagen at some point made a big decision to invest in going uh, electric and having electric cars, and, and it was a big plan. It kind of backfired, but he made a statement that he thought that if the company went electric or the majority of its cars were electric, they would have to cut about 30,000 employees from their workforce. Now that didn't didn't please the work council very much. And, 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 the, and there were stories that the head of the work council uh, e- eventually uh, uh, managed to vote him out as CEO. And he lost his job because of that. Now in the US you have Ford and the CEO did the same uh, statement to saying, look, you know, the reality is that uh, electric car companies require much less employees and will have to cut, you know, a lot of staff. He didn't get fired. And it's to me that those are interesting <laughs> distinctions between the governance models 
of Germany or um, you know management and supervisory boards and single boards and and so any thoughts or comments about that and I'm sure uh, George you're more familiar with that because it's more common in Europe in the US that's still not the case that you have employees on the board although there's been political proposals to start doing that but it's still not an issue at least from the governance perspective yeah well i think that's that's it's a tension between why companies exist between i mean you you know we use the word company in both jurisdictions but people you know in each of these jurisdictions might think different things about why they exist <clears throat> one of the in the book and one of the things that we teach in the course is a really interesting case study of of German, uh, Japanese, French, American, and British executives in 1995, which is about 30 years ago, they were asked a question, whose company is it? And you get the choice of shareholders versus stakeholders. And in you know, Japan, Germany, and in France, and particularly in Japan, it was obvious, it was skewed heavily towards stakeholders, where if you ask the same cohorts in the US and the UK, it's, mm-hmm. you know, skewed towards the shareholder. And, and so I think that that's, that's a tension that existed then. I, it's a it's a tension that I, I think still exists because you know, there are different cultures and part of the issue. You, I think one of the parts of the case which makes it interesting is this is a company that is they have cost issues, but that's and and one of the reasons they have cost issues is because they have a very high cost based labor force because they're in a high cost country and they're, and they're they're demonstrably less efficient than their arch rival Toyota. What do you do about it? You know, the, the 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 North American answer would be to cut the weight, cut the workforce. But if you're if you're half of your supervisory board is um, you know is from the trades councils, and you know twenty uh, percent of your stock is held by you know the local you know federal state, there's going to be a strong impetus for for all sorts of motivations from the state's purposes. Generating tax revenues and employment is very important. You know, I think these 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 factors play out in a in in a German environment more than they would in a U.S. environment. Yeah, and 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 these are, you know, when you talk about international corporate governance, some really interesting questions. Let's pivot a little bit into the U.S. and and maybe there is some of this in the Europe in Europe. I, I don't know, but now we are living through this anti-ESG trend in the U.S. and it's become highly politicized, where some political segment are pushing back against this ESG agenda, pushing back against large asset managers that they feel are imposing uh, a, an agenda to companies, and it's become very polarized. And, and, and this is fairly new, right? This is probably six months, it's probably one year, and clearly um, now it's become, uh, you know, out of the control of only companies, now it's become a political agenda. And I want to get your, your your take on that because how do you see that, George? Maybe from Europe, and what's the feeling there? And maybe Mike, you know, how do you you, you live in Washington D.C., right? So this is, you know, become a, a big theme uh, politically. And, and I think I've talked to a lot of guests about that because it seems to be the one number one topic in corporate governance these days. It's you know it's almost like the tale of two cities you know looking at the U.S. and 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 the uh, in Europe um, because you know what's ha- what's happening in Europe just as a background is is particularly with the EU where they're taking sustainable again you know building from that point about more of a stake stakeholder minded economy that that's where the Euro- that's where the European Union is heading 
with its legislation, disclosure regulations, looking at changing directors' duties, all with a view towards promoting sustainability and more of a stakeholder-based model. That is sort of the norm you know, here. And I think Britain is a, a bit in the middle in different ways. But that's, you know, that's really the antithesis of, of what's going on in the States where, you know, it's, I, I, you know, my view is it's being, you know, unduly politicized and, and radically distorted by people who either are being cynical and, you know, just distorting it on purpose or maybe just don't really understand it. Um, and my, I think, so I think it's, uh, it's a disturbing trend that I hope is going to be be dealt with, but I think it's, you know, it also lays down some legitimate challenges for, for ESG investors to ensure that what they're doing does represent, you know, is, is material and is, 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 is not greenwashing. I think that there, there are some important things that investors need to take from this, but I think that, that the way it's become simplified and politicized is, is I think from a European perspective, it's, it's a, you know, almost going against the grain. And it's, you know, it's one of the things that I think, you know, people overseas are looking at the U.S. with, you know, question marks. About. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mike. Yeah, I think George has put it very correctly. In the U.S., it's a combination of the failure of those investors in particular who have properly taken ES and G factors into account in their investment uh, decision making to properly articulate what they're doing and why. Basically, the term has not been as carefully uh, defined and consistently used as it could be. And then there are folks who are, as George said, willfully misunderstanding uh, what uh, what ESG represents in the context of, of asset owners and asset managers and using it to stoke the culture wars. Because in the U.S., unlike most places and most rational societies, a large part of our politics has nothing to do with public policy and everything to do with uh, different cultural approaches. And um, uh, so I think, the, so in some ways, people who are doing the right things walked into this. And then the other, uh, the other side, there are people willfully misusing these terms to build, to build a excitement among their, their base, but in an uninformed way. I think it's interesting that I think just today I saw uh, in, in Global Proxy Watch, the weekly diary of, uh, of governance, stewardship, and sustainability, uh, a, um, a report about a, uh, a budget office or a, you know, a nonpartisan government agency that determined that if the ESG-savvy investment managers were excluded from the state's pension fund, it would lose a considerable amount of money or would, would have lower returns going forward by a lot. Uh, if if it went th if if that decision was made, so um, uh, so I, I hopefully that eventually folks will see that the cost of this uh, these efforts are are are, are significant, and um, we'll um, uh, we'll find some other culture war thing to fight over. <laughs> well, you know, one one other um, aspect of this, and maybe it's it's a different aspect, is that we've seen in the last. 10, 20, 30 years, the growth of index funds, of these mutual funds that have become very, very big. So BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, uh, you know, uh, own about 25% of 
uh, you know, the market, they have a lot of voting power. And, you know, BlackRock by itself is 10 trillion and Larry Fink's letters are incredibly influential. And one of the pushbacks is, well, you have four entities that if you project in the next 10, 20 years, you know, it, it may be 22% or 23% today, but it may be 40%. Is it okay that we have so few people that essentially will have will be in a position to mandate uh, what companies should do? And one of the uh, counter arguments, or at least one of the trends, is that the same BlackRock and Vanguard are saying, look, what we're going to do now is we're going to pass through our voting power to beneficial owners, and that way maybe ease some of this pressure. Maybe it's a political play. Maybe it's something that they feel they're the heat is too close, uh, and and you know they're calling this a little bit a new era of shareholder democracy. So I just want to ask you, what do you think about this trend, and uh, what uh, you know, how do you think that this is going to play out, Mike? Let's start with you. I think it's very early days. Uh, I think you're right. This is driven by the pressure on those intermediaries. They're, they'll feel that if they are perceived as too powerful, um, uh, that will hurt them. It's not technologically driven. Evan, you know better than uh, than I do that the technology to pass through voting rights to beneficial owners existed long, long ago. Um, uh, I, I I think what we'll really need to 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 um, to assess all along the way is how those ultimate beneficiaries get the information that they need to make the decisions, whether they have the resources and the time. I don't vote all the shares in my portfolio. Mm -hmm. I have a direct, you know, I, my, all my money is managed by somebody else, but I have direct shares. I don't bother to vote half those shares. And I'm a corporate governance activist. Mm -hmm. So we need to see how this works in practice whether it ends up being something that usefully results in shareholder democracy or, in fact, further insulates companies mm -hmm. from activists or informed shareholders. Mm -hmm. George, what are your thoughts? Um, I, there's a logic to it, um, but I think it's, you know, I just wonder about its practical effectiveness, uh, really. And, and it, it sort of... Um, it suggests to me that investors need to get the, the go ahead from company uh, from you know to to uh, vote on certain uh, sustainability types of resolutions and issues or to engage on that. Whereas I think in many cases investors should be doing that in any event as a, as a means of as a means of if nothing else risk managing uh, their portfolios. And so yeah, I think if it's a question of asking companies to do to to do things that are potentially more really directly in the social and, and, and political sphere, then maybe that is a legitimate thing to do. But I think most of the ESG work that I see a lot of investors are doing is really done within the context of not promoting a political agenda uh, as much as it is in just trying to generate sustainable returns for beneficiaries, which needs to ask, answer these questions too. So, you know, well, I, I suspect it's, I'd be surprised if it catches on in a big way. Um, because if Mike Lubrano is not going to vote, who will, right? And um, uh, so, but you know, we'll see. It'll, it's it's a fair it's a fair point and it's a fair issue to consider. Okay. Before we uh, jump into the rapid fire questions, are there any other takeaways that you think uh, is important for directors who are listening that you, you want to, to give them, or you think it's important to highlight in these times? Maybe Mike, I'll start with you, and then George, I'll follow up with you. 
for for directors? Yeah, for directors. What? Yeah, well, I I think we've gone through a period last 10, 15 years of significant shareholder activism, and there are different models and different approaches. But there are um, uh, some of those tools are being refined and um, and have been effective. Uh, everything from the you know the the guns blaring efforts of uh, of somebody like um, Engine Number One to the more constructivist cases that you never hear about right. because that's brought to the attention of the company. The company uh, uh, engages with the activist investor and and it becomes a uh, a win win situation. Let's say for 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 everybody. I I work with a number of smaller active owner, activist, and active-ish uh, 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 asset managers. And um, and they've had a significant number of successes that you don't read about in the papers. I think that um, uh, I, I think that directors need to be conscious that there is this spectrum, maybe is the right word to use, of, of, of activist-ish and constructivist investors that are going to be knocking on their doors and that they they need to understand how those uh, models work and and how to work with them rather than panic, which I think a lot of directors do when they hear that there's some some form of activism uh, in among their shareholder base. Mike, let me let me ask you a, a sub question. There, you've been active for many years, decades in emerging markets, and uh, the question is: activism in emerging markets when you have controlling shareholders is not the same dynamic in the U.S. because in the U.S. You, it goes down to a vote. So uh, the engine number one bought 0.002% of Exxon with $30 million, but was able to convince BlackRock and Vanguard and, you know, Calsters and the proxy advisors, and they got the vote at the end, and, and they got three directors elected uh, and, 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 a, and a move that is really important. But that kind of dynamic doesn't happen in uh, controlled, large control companies because they already have 70% of the vote, so you're never going to win that vote. So my question is, how did you live through activist campaigns? And it has to be, I suppose, much more about persuasion, much a, a much different activist playbook, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how do you see that play out maybe in now or in the future? Well, you're absolutely right that these are very different market contexts. And the companies are almost always controlled. In the, when I worked for Cardiac for more than 10 years, I don't think there was more than one or two companies ever in the portfolio that didn't have an effective majority shareholder or you know, group working in concert. So you have fewer tools. You don't have effective threats of a, of a shareholder vote. In some instances, in some markets, because of the concentration of ownership, there are special uh, mechanisms to get minority shareholders on the board. And that's not an insignificant impact on, does not have insignificant impact on the company. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, it, it, it won't change the direction of a company because of a share of a, I'm sorry, of a board vote, but it will change the, the, the dynamic inside the company. And so that acts as both a threat or if you actually get somebody on the board, um, you, you, you can change the company that way. Um, but I, I think in the end, one of the flip sides is in most of these cases, the controlling shareholders money is, is on the table. Uh, in, in, you know, almost in the same proportion, except in cases of dual class uh, mm. uh, of their votes, and so the persuasion uh, is um, is a market persuasion. You show that the shares are undervalued, or you might contribute in some ways to making it evident that the shares are undervalued. Or you, you can have, you can have if you're a major shareholder. We were ten percent shareholders in some of the companies. They 
the the owners of the companies realized if we got really unhappy, we would dump the shares, and that would be unfortunate for the company, particularly in a company that's trying to raise more money in international capital markets. If you can show, particularly growth companies, uh, the controls of growth companies, that their ability to raise as much money as they they plan to in the future is in jeopardy, or the cost will be much higher unless they pay attention to the changes that you want to make, um, uh, 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 you can get somewhere um, mm-hmm. with, with those sorts of strategies. But they have to be more, a lot of times they're a lot more personal, I have to admit. You know, um, uh, you have to build uh, build uh, relationships with these folks. You have to almost be there. Uh, you have to say, particularly if you're a large shareholder, you can say, look, we're in this with you. And there are things you don't see. And, um, uh, and you have to find your champions in the companies. Companies are not monolithic. So you look for... Sometimes it's generational. The younger generation is a little bit more open uh, to uh, to the kind of issues that activists um, might bring to the table. Um, uh, sometimes it's the folks who understand the finances better. Um, uh, it, it takes a lot more work. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting, and and I think uh, it, it's good to see the evolution as well, and maybe some of these uh, better governance practices, maybe a lot of those that you outline in your book, thinking for emerging markets, how to think about these issues and, and how do investors and large investors think about it to coalesce some of these behaviors. And it's not only you know, a company that they can manage in any way they, they want to do. George, any thoughts for directors as we close in before going to rapid fire questions? Well, maybe, maybe a couple of high level ones. Um, is I think, and this is a cha- this is a challenge for investors too. I think that the focus, you know, we, we get caught up in the ESG, you know, debate. I think we we can get we can chase our tail a little bit, but I think the key is to focus on how you know ESG factors contribute to sustainable value value creation. That is, I think, legitimate. That makes it legitimate for boards. It makes it legitimate for shareholders. And 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 this implies looking at these factors through the lens of opportunity at one level, but certainly through the lens of risk. Um, And and as I heard a great phrase this week, risk is not woke. Risk is risk. Uh, And Uh and I think we're going to get canceled using that word here. (laughs) uh, I I may regret that, Evan. But in in any event, and then. The, the other thing I would say is that, again, this, this contrast between the U.S. and the U.K., which I think is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, the U.S. and Europe, which uh, continues in some ways, is I think even if the U.S. is going in, you know, the anti-ESG direction with, within regard to the United States, it's not as if any, you know, large multinational U.S. company that's doing business in the European Union can avoid uh, coming to terms, at least at some level, with the idea of double materiality, uh, thinking about the company's own impact uh, on society, the externalities that the company may create, which could be harbingers for for new risks down the road, the, the concept of dynamic materiality. And so I think that, you know, whether, whether you know, the mentality in the U.S. is going to, you know, be favoring that perspective. I think it's, if nothing else, companies who want to have a license to operate in Europe, um, and most major U.S. companies will, will have to deal with these issues, at, at least with regard to the European mm-hmm. operations. So it's, you know, I think that it's, it's going to be interesting to see that idea, uh, you know, take you know, how that may develop in the United States. All right. Well, that's great. 
Let's switch to the rapid fire questions. Mike, let's start with you. What are the one, two, three? Oh, can you start with George? <laughs> okay. George, let's start with you. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? That's, that's where I, fa- I fail in rapid fire. But I thought about this. I'll give you one sort of a, 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 a very wise book that I've read three times. Uh, it's by a Swiss um, sort of psychiatrist philosopher called Eric Fromm. He wrote a book called The Art of Loving. And, you know, and it's not a porn book. It's, just, just, <laughs> it's, it's more just try to, you know, it, it provides, I think, a good grounding. And, and if, if nothing else, I've read it several times and I've always taken something away from it. But more recently, I like Amor Tolls quite a bit, too. Okay. Uh, Mike. I was going to go back and forth. Yeah, it's great. Um, I don't really have a single book, but I have a few authors mm-hmm. that have... Uh, uh, really influenced me. One is Terry Pratchett, the creator of the Discworld series, and probably more famous recently because he was the author of Good Omens, which was a um, it's a TV series. And uh, and and I value his books for their irreverence. Mm-hmm. Another would be Tony Judd, who was a historian of modern times and uh, brilliant insights in how we are the world society that we are today. And I happen to be a uh, Mexican history buff. Mm. My favorite historian of Mexico is Enrique Krause, probably also the bestseller. So I haven't really picked anybody who's who's niche, but um, uh, Enrique Krause would, would be my favorite Mexican historian. Wow, I love that. Okay, George, who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Well, lots of mentors. Um, an academic one was a guy called John Holcomb, who still is a good friend. He's he was a teacher of what they called it when I was in getting my MBA at Berkeley, the political, social, and legal environment of business, which is a harbinger, I think, for what we're what we've been discussing today. And uh, he went on to the uh, to the University of Maryland in Denver, and we're we're still very good friends, and we're, we've become kindred souls. Um, and then I think in the world of corporate governance, Mike, uh, I got I got to point out Bob Monks, uh, Nell Minow. Mm-hmm in the book that they wrote, which I've read. That's another book I've read more than once. Um, and, and I can't, and of course, Christian Stranger, who's it was part of the inspiration behind the VW case for all. He was he was back there behind the scenes all the time. And he's just a, a, a great leading figure, uh, in, in really, really standing up in, in, in a German environment where he, he was he's been hostily received, but, but still holds his ground, which is very admirable. Wow. Okay. That's great. Mike, what about your mentors? Well, I won't call these mentors because they're not that much older than I am, but the folks that have uh, helped me the most in my career and also some some extent uh, uh, my personal life. First one is uh, one of your recent uh, guests, Stephen Davis, who is a bit of a spiritual advisor since the beginning of my involvement with uh, OECD and the Global uh, Corporate Governance uh, uh, Forum that existed then in ICGN. Um, he mentioned that he is a um, uh, does have a spiritual side, if you recall. He mm-hmm. uh, so sometimes I call him mm-hmm. my rabbi. Um, <laughs> another is uh, that was somebody you used you had in a previous um, uh, a previous podcast, and one is the guy you have on this podcast, George Dallas. Um, George uh, uh, has been the perfect uh, collaborator, at least from this side for me. Um, and he's taught me, he's, he's responsible for my blood pressure not being above 150 over 90 uh, through, the, through the pandemic and through all the work that we've had to do together. He's, he's taught me balance and, uh, and um, 
uh, and compassion to some uh, to a greater extent than uh, than I had. And then finally, Mats Isaacson, who was for a long time the head of the corporate governance unit at OECD. We were collaborators while I was at IFC, and he guided me to understand how big multinational organizations work and how to be effective in them, how not to be jaded by their uh, politics and inefficiency. So those are my my three. Those be my three um, magi. Okay, that's great. Uh, uh, I'm glad to know them all. <laughs> that's good. You know everybody in yeah. this field, man. <laughs> okay, uh, George, let's move into, are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? Yeah, um, uh, I've actually, this might, this cropped up once in one of our dialogues when we were uh, when we were doing the book, and I don't know what prompted it, but um, through my not not be, I'm not a churchgoer by any stretch, but because I do singing of uh, in, of early music, most of, a lot of that is is sacred. I came across uh, a piece that that uh, spoke as uh, Galatians, uh, I think it's uh, five twenty two twenty three, which basically speaks to living a, living your life in accord with the fruits of the spirit, which are love, peace, joy, kindness, generosity, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and the hardest one, of course, is self-control. And I do try to repeat yeah. that to myself uh, on an almost. And, and for the record, because I'm, I'm seeing it, you didn't read that. This is something you know. So that's oh, yeah. uh, very, very good. <laughs> that's great. Mike, what about you? Uh, mine's going to be a little bit less uh, inspirational. <laughs> My Sicilian grandmother had an expression. Okay. I translated it into English, but it's Good is good. Too good is no good. <laughs> so I've, I've, uh, maybe I shouldn't live by it, but I, I, I do kind of live by that motto. Or, or, or perfect as enemy of the good is another way. I think it's a little bit more of an edge than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, George, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Um, well, I think Mike knows this as well. Uh, I play the banjo in a local bluegrass band, which is a okay. source of great joy. That's great. I love that. And not just for him, but for his audiences, which are his devoted fan base, of which I am a, a member. <laughs> what about you, Mike? What What are your unusual habits or oh, for, things? For, for, I have a lot of unusual habits, but we don't really need to go into those. <laughs> but the one that I would highlight is I, I, I'm a backyard pizza maker. I, <laughs> I have a backyard wood-burning pizza wow. oven. And the reason that's weird is and absurd is because it takes way more time and effort than it's worth. I'm not saying the pizzas are bad. They're decent pizzas. But, you know, the world is full of good pizza. Yeah. You don't need to go about making it this way. But I, I, uh, I'm well, committed to it. I read there's 60,000 pizza restaurants in the U.S., so there's no lack of pizza, right? I, I go all over the world. They're everywhere I go. <laughs> I, I, I try the local pizzas. All right. Final question for both of you. Which living person do you most admire? George will go to you. Yeah, I thought about that too. Um, there's lots, um, but I, I decided to to name two Georgians because of my roots. Um, one of which is one of which is recently died, and one of one of whom is still living. The one who recently died is John Lewis, who is the uh, former congressman who was a you know really was on the vanguard of, of civil rights in the South and a really elegant and, and determined and just dignified man. Um, and then Jimmy Carter, who, who has those same attributes, uh, whose who's, you know, probably greatest contribution came after he was president of the United States. But again, his, his decency um, you know, is uh, something that still is an inspiration. Mm, that's great. Mike, what about you? 
Okay, for the fa- past 14 years, it's been the same person, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. um, who has had to has had has shown grace through endless endless vicissitudes of his public uh, life, and, and still finds ways to be as effective as he can without making it all about him. And that's very difficult for a politician. That's very unusual for a politician. So he remains mm-hmm. my most inspi- inspirational person. All right. Well, Mike and George, thank you so much for talking to me on this podcast to share your lessons and your viewpoints on governance, uh, your latest book. And it's always great to touch base. I'm glad we did this. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon. Uh, And thanks again for everything. Thank you, Evan. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. And it's even more fun than I thought it would be. Thank you very much, Evan. It's great. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.